invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And then if you have one of those ribbons in your Bible, you're going to want to put that in Psalm 22. Because we're going to be back and forth between the two passages. The first place will be is Matthew 27. And then if you have a ribbon or slip of paper or something, put it there in Psalm 22. We'll go back and forth pretty quickly. As you all know, buying a new car or even getting a new car to you is an exciting time, right? Especially for those first few weeks. Get that nice smell in there. You can play around with its features to see how fast it can go, right? Keep it. You polish it real nice. You keep it pristine. At least for the first few weeks. The kids can't eat in it. At least until the newness wears off, right? And then it's all over at that point. Cheerios down the seats. <laughs> but there's also something else that happens every time you get a new car. The first few weeks after you get a new car, you realize something. You see your car everywhere, don't you? Yes. It's like everybody in town has the same car you do. They all went and bought it right when you did. Why? Because now you're looking for something that you weren't noticing before, right? You see now what you didn't realize before. Oh, that person's got over there. I see it again over there. Well, there's a similar dynamic that I want you to see today as we look at Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. We don't often think of the Psalms as being the place. But once you start seeing it in Psalm 22, you will see it in all of Psalm 22. And you'll see this, this vivid description of what, what David provides for us related to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 is written by David. We see that in the introductory material that comes right before some of the Psalms. It tells us that it is, it is a Psalm of David. And in just a few weeks of reading the Psalms so far, we've looked at Psalm 2, Psalm 16, and then today, Psalm 22, we realize a couple things about David very quickly. That one, he is a father of the Messiah, and yet he is also a figure of the Messiah. A father of the Messiah in the sense that Matthew 1 comes along and tells us that in his genealogy, that Jesus is in the line of David. Luke 2.4, the narrative of Jesus' birth, says that Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. Isaiah 11.1, 1, uh, 1 through 10, predicts that there will come someone, there will come a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That's David's father. And even a blind man just outside of Jericho, as Jesus was coming through, he knew who Jesus was. Remember what he said, Bartimaeus? Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. So David is a father of the Messiah, but what we see in Psalm 22 and many of the Messianic Psalms that we're looking at is that David is also a figure of the Messiah. David is a good king who points us to the greatest king. And when David writes these Psalms, whether they are a Psalm of praise or maybe what we would see in Psalm 22, more of lament, he writes of his own struggles, he writes of his faith, his hope, the challenges in his life, yet he also writes of someone beyond himself. So there's, there's this both and going on in what David gives us in the Psalms. He is both true to his own situation, yet he's also true to the situation and suffering 
of the greater king that is to come. And in Psalm 22 here, we see this panoramic view of the cross that David provides for us. As he kind of scans the horizon, he looks through his telescope, as it were, into the future, and he sees what's going to happen to to Christ, and he describes the, the gravity of the crucifixion cross. Keep in mind, he describes it in detail, having never for himself actually seen a crucifixion. That didn't come until later, until the Romans. And so it is stunning how much descriptive detail David provides about an event that he's never seen take place. So how does David know so much about it? Well, he doesn't. Honestly, he doesn't. But the Holy Spirit does. If you remember last week, we talked briefly about the authority of Scripture and how the resurrection had to happen because Scripture claimed that it would. And we saw that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. There's authority there. Well, today we see the inspiration of Scripture. Because think about it. How can Bible writers describe things of which they have never seen and know nothing about? How can they make prophecies about times and events and people that they haven't seen and will never see? Think about Malachi. Malachi says there's this one coming like Elijah. But Malachi would, didn't know who that was, wouldn't see that person come. He wouldn't live long enough to see it fulfilled. And yet 400 years later, John the baptizer comes fulfilling that prophecy as one like Elijah and paves the way for Christ. How did Malachi know about that? How can the writers of scripture do that? You know, there must be some overriding power behind them that leads them to write what they write. Guess what? There is. 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's the inspiration of Scripture that we see here in Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit gives us at least eight, probably a lot more. We're going to focus on eight of them this morning, eight foreshadowings of the crucifixion of Jesus in Psalm 22. A thousand years before this happens, A thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us this picture of it. And I had you turn to Matthew 27, because I think Matthew 27, verses 32 to 54, serve as the best picture of fulfillment of what David spoke of in Psalm 22. Let's look at Matthew 27, 32 to 34, and we see the first one. Now, this comes right after he's been, he's been uh, uh, said to be, uh, he's going to be crucified. Pilate is going to, to uh, make the decree that he's going to be crucified. They've led him up to the hill. And then verse 32. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. John 19 verses 28 to 29 shows us or tells us 
Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. The thirst that Jesus would have experienced on the cross was extreme. And to be offered vinegar or sour wine when water is desired is almost a, a mockery of the suffering of the pain. But John tells us something interesting here. He said, if you caught it, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. He said, I thirst so to, in order to fulfill scripture. Well, what scripture are we referring to? Look at Psalm 22, verse 15. He says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Jesus here is experiencing a powerful thirst and I don't know if any of us have ever been this thirsty where the mouth is so dry that it's almost sticky and sticks together. His mouth clinging, his tongue clinging to his jaws. It's Psalm 22:15. It's also Psalm 69:21 that is being fulfilled in Matthew 27. Psalm 69:21 says, "They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink." And Jesus there on the cross, he cries out, "I thirst." And what he's doing is he's, while on the cross, he's fulfilling the words of Scripture from David in the Psalms, once again saying, "I am the one that the Scripture has pointed to." And Jesus fulfills every one. The second one we see, if you would look at verse 35 in Matthew 27, just a few words here, and it says, then they crucified him. Then they crucified him. In just a few words, we see a summary of the horrors of crucifixion. Then they crucified him. And a thousand years prior, David... Never having seen a crucifixion, he describes some of those horrors in Psalm 22, verse 16. When David says, which is really Christ speaking, he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, now don't miss here. Please notice the pinpoint accuracy of what David describes. What else would David be referring to? What else is there in which the hands and the feet would both be pierced? What else would it be besides the methods by which the Romans attached the crucifixion victim to the cross? And David, a thousand years before, says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. What else could he be referring to? Who else could he be referring to other than the Messiah, the Christ, and if you remember John 20, verse 25, Jesus later on, when he appears to the disciples in that upper room, he shows them what? To confirm who he is. He says, look at the wounds in my hands. Jesus was crucified. He was, he was pierced. And in this, I think we see the heart of Christ, especially. Can you imagine just for a moment, because we think of the cross and we kind of all roll it into one, but imagine just one thing about the cross for just a second. Being nailed to a beam 
and placed there for everyone to see. What could be more excruciating and humiliating than being pierced in that way and hung up for everyone to see? The heart of Christ is evident by his willingness to be nailed to a cross in that way. The third one we also see in verse 35 of Matthew 27. It says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross, and the Roman soldiers take his, his purple robe probably, and they start to cast lots for this. And Matthew says that what they did, what these soldiers did, fulfilled what was written in Scripture. And, and this to me is incredible because something as seemingly insignificant as pulling a short straw, as it were, casting lots, something that insignificant was orchestrated by God in order to fulfill what he had said about the Savior. God is in the details. God is in the details of our lives. He's in the details of what is going on in our world. Now notice too, the soldiers had no clue what they were doing was fulfilling prophecy. No idea whatsoever. They were just doing it because, hey, that's what we do. And yet, God was working through them. We see the sovereignty of God overriding human events. Now, it says in Matthew 27 that, that what they did was fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for clothing they cast lots. What scripture did this fulfill? What scripture? The soldiers didn't have this scripture in mind, obviously. Maybe the Pharisees did when they saw what was happening. Can you imagine maybe them standing off to the side and cringing a little bit? Oh, there's another, another prophecy being fulfilled, and they can't stop it. Well, the scripture that's being fulfilled is Psalm 22, verse 18. Would you look at that one? Matthew says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And Psalm 22, 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I think it's interesting here that Matthew calls David a prophet. Last week when we looked at Acts 2, Peter, in his message on the day of Pentecost, also called David a prophet, saying David is looking into the future here and not talking just about himself, but he's talking about someone who is to come. The fourth one we see is in verse 36, Matthew 27, 36. It says, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. In Luke 23, verse 35, it says, when Jesus was on the cross, that the people stood there looking on, staring at him. Crucifixion, as you know, was a public event. It wasn't off in the corner somewhere, you know, behind some high walls. It was meant to be done publicly. People would come by and witness the death of someone. Passers-by, usually it was kind of near the, near the highway, near the road, where it could be visible to many people coming by, both to, to announce the, the, the authority and power of Rome also to humiliate criminals, also to deter crime. But these passers-by would see these bodies hanging there for days, potentially, sometimes. People passing by rubbernecking, as it were, 
on their way into Jerusalem and looking and, and staring. Kind of like we would do on the interstate sometimes. As if the accident isn't bad enough as you're pulled off to the side of the road, but then everybody going by is staring at you, thinking, what in the world did they do? It's kind of what's happening here. And he says, they stare at me. And think about it. Jesus probably drew a bigger crowd than, than most common criminals. He certainly caused a stir in life, didn't he? And he caused a stir in death as well. Jesus becomes a humiliated spectacle that everyone stares at. Where do we see this in Psalm 22? It's in verse 17. The second phrase in verse 17, it says, they look and they stare at me. I can't really even imagine the physical pain of crucifixion. I can, I can believe that it was very intense, but I would think maybe the humiliation of being crucified, of being naked and, and, and nailed to a tree with everyone looking on, that may have even been worse. You know how it is when you get hurt or you trip and fall or something? Your first thought is not for your pain. Your first thought is for what? Who saw me? That happened to me in Florida. I was riding my bike back to my house. It's out in the morning, and my seat broke. And I just landed right on the sidewalk. Fortunately, the sidewalk and not in the road. And my first thought was not, am I okay? My first thought was, who saw that happen? Because it's embarrassing. Who's staring at me right now as I am humiliated, crumpled up on the side of the sidewalk? You know, a thousand times more than that, Christ here on the cross being stared at and humiliated as the Son of God, nonetheless, brought low and humiliated. The fifth one is in verse 38 of Matthew 27. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. In Psalm 22, verse 16, it says this, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. You know, there was nothing glorious about Jesus' company on that day. Gospels are clear that Jesus was on the center cross and either side of him were two criminals, two thieves, maybe even murderers, who definitely deserved to be crucified, deserved to be there. And not only that, but jeering soldiers gathered around Jesus as he was beaten mocking crowds as he journeyed to the cross. Even before that, when he was in front of Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then hung between two thieves like a criminal. The Bible says he was numbered with the transgressors. David rightly said, dogs have surrounded me and the wicked close in on me. You know, I think it's interesting to make a point here, and that is this, that Jesus... The company of Jesus's at his death was not much different than the company that he kept in his life. You know that? He was the friend of sinners, the one that the outcasts and, and the renegades ran to. He was the one who had the time for them when no one else would give them the time of day. Jesus was the one who went to Mary Magdalene and cast seven demons out of her. The woman caught in adultery who was thrown to Jesus' feet. Once that event was over, don't you think she was pretty glad she was at Jesus' feet and not someone else's? The maniac of Gadara who was tearing himself up and being a terror to the town. 
comes to Jesus and finds refuge in Christ. And then one of the last things that Jesus did and one of the last things that that criminal did, one of the criminals that was with him, even in death, surrounded by dogs, as it were, the thief on the cross comes to Jesus and he says, will you have me? And Jesus says, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. The friend of sinners, I think we see the heart of Christ here as well, the heart of Christ for the outcast. And you know whose heart that is supposed to become? ours. The heart of Christ for the outcast is to be our heart as well, because we are not just here for for people that are just like us and fit in our, our nice little neatly constructed boxes that we have for our little life. No, we remain here on earth to love and to serve like Jesus did. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The sixth one that we see here in Matthew 27 is in verse 39, down through verse 44. Matthew writes, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Would you look at Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8 with me? Psalm 22, 6 through 8. David writes, speaking of Jesus, he says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. What David writes in verses 6, 7, and 8 is a picture of what Christ experienced on the cross. Notice the, the similarities here. 22.7 in Psalm is Matthew 27.39. 22.7 says, All those who see me ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head. Verse 39 of Matthew 27 says, Those who pass by blasphemed him, wagging their heads wagging their heads at him and sticking out their tongue, as it were. In Matthew 27, verse 42, it's interesting what they say here, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They say, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Probably not true, but notice what they say. They want him to prove he was king by coming down from the cross. Don't miss this. Jesus was proving he was king by staying on the cross, dying, and then rising again. Salvation is according to God's plan and his way, not ours. Psalm 22, 8. It says, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Psalm 22, 8 is Matthew 27, 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. You know, that may be the claim 
of Jesus's that made them the most angry, the claim that he was the son of God. And so here they vehemently attack his relationship with his father. Notice what they're saying. It's, they're basically saying he trusted in God and look where it got him. He said, I am the son of God, but what kind of father would allow this to happen to their son? And by attacking Christ on the cross, who were they attacking? They were attacking God, the one they claimed to worship and believe. The one they claimed they obeyed. Because Jesus said in John 14, 7, if you know me, you know the Father. Your view of Christ matters. Your view of Christ will be your view of God. And notice it wasn't just a couple random people saying these things. Everyone joins in on this derision. Verse 39, those who passed by. Verse 41, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Verse 44, even the robbers crucified on either side of him jumped on the pile. I think if there was ever a time when the 10,000 angels could have been called, this may have been it. Hanging on the cross, the father and the son being mocked and ridiculed. And then verse 45, we see number seven here. The seventh connection to Psalm 22. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't miss verse 45. It says that it was three hours of darkness that descended on the land there. From about noon to 3 p.m., while Jesus hung on the cross, darkness covers the land. And at the end of those three hours, it says Jesus cries with a loud voice. And what he cries is the exact same thing that David writes for us in Psalm 22, 1. Jesus cries out what David said. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The loud cry, everyone could hear it. And you can imagine that this cry from the cross is just dripping with intensity and emotion as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that brings up some questions for us, no doubt. Why that mournful cry? What is the significance of that? What was Jesus facing at this exact moment that made him say that? And we have to ask ourselves this question, did God really forsake Jesus? Jesus says he does, says he did. Many scholars believe, and I find this fascinating, many scholars believe that the three hours of darkness very well could have been the time in which God was pouring out the full weight of sin on Jesus. And maybe the darkness was intended to shield people from the intensity of it as Jesus took on the sin of the world. If that's the case, this would have been one of the worst times possible on the cross. As the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was at this time that God punished Christ as he would have punished each of us individually 
and yet it's all on Christ. The wrath of God is on the sin of the world. That sin is placed on Christ. Therefore, the full wrath of God upon sin is on Christ at this moment. Could it be, could it be that the full and complete punishment for sin is to be forsaken by God? How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus described for us the closeness of his relationship with the father. He said that the father knows the son and the son knows the father. But notice with me that at the moment of God's turning away, Jesus experiences something that he had never experienced before. And that is the abandonment of God. No wonder Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all know that sin has taken a toll on this world, has it not? And at this moment on the cross, sin was taking its complete toll on Christ. You say, well, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? If God forsook even Christ, even Christ, why or does he forsake us who are sinners? If God forsook even Christ, why or would he forsake even us? And here's the answer. No. And here's why. Because God forsook Christ on the cross, he does not forsake those who believe on Christ. Because he forsook Christ on the cross, he does not forsake those who believe in Christ. But you say, wait, it, off, it, it usually seems like that in my struggles and in my trials that God has dropped the reins, that he has forsaken us, that his hands are off of our struggles. Well, here's the truth. Though at times it may seem that way, the truth remains that because he forsook Christ on the cross, he does not forsake those who believe on Christ. Sin has been atoned for at the cross. And because of that, the love and friendship of God is always on those who believe in Christ. That's the beauty of what happened. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Mr. Pinter in Sunday school talked about this this morning as well, that God will be with us. We live by truth and not by feelings. Sometimes it might feel like I've been forsaken by God. Sometimes that cry of Christ might be our own cry. It may seem that way, but the truth remains that because God forsook Christ, he does not forsake those who believe on him. There's an English poet in the 18th century named William Cooper who his whole life struggled with intense bouts of suicidal depression, dealt with it his entire life. At times for him, it had to feel like God was abandoning him, like he was turning him over and just letting him go. But yet William Cooper wrote these words that remind us of what Christ did for us when he was under the wrath of God and forsaken at the cross. William Cooper wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And I think this verse may be specifically for William Cooper himself. He says, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. One of the blessings for us that comes from Christ's agony of being forsaken on the cross is that because sin is atoned for, all those who then believe in Christ will never, ever, ever be forsaken by God. Not now and not in eternity. It's a promise of God. Why? Because the wrath of God is not on us. It was on Christ for us. That's the reason. So I ask you, what is your response to that? What is your response to the hope that we have in Christ and the work that Christ has done for us? Does it thrill you? Does it excite you that you are free in Christ? Or does it scare you because you know, your faith is not in Christ and therefore the wrath of God is on you? Look at Matthew 27, verse 54 show you the response of one person there that day, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 54 says, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. I don't know if this man came to saving faith or if he was just acknowledging a fact that had been revealed to him. But he says, from what I've seen, truly this was the Son of God. What is your response to the death of Christ? What is your response to the Son of God who knew no sin becoming sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him? John 1.12 says that as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. To receive Christ, according to John 1.12, and believe in Christ means that you become a child of God. And as a child of God, it means you are a brother or sister of Christ. Imagine that. Formerly enemies of God, now in the family of God as brothers and sisters of Christ himself. There's one other foreshadowing of Christ in Psalm 22 that I didn't mention. And to see that, I want you to take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, it's quoted for us. Verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 2, 11 and 12 says this, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, 
saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Now in verse 11, we see two different groups here. It says, for both he who sanctifies, who's that? Who is he who sanctifies? That's Christ. And then it says, and those who are being sanctified, who's that? That's us. It says, both of those, the one who sanctifies and the, one who's, one who is being, the ones who are being sanctified are all of one. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, Christ and us, it says are all of one, and Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. And then he quotes something. In essence, he says, he's not ashamed to call you brethren. In fact, he already has called you brethren. Because he says, he has said, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Well, where did Christ say that? Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, verse 22, Hebrews 2, 12 quotes David speaking as Christ or for Christ, as it were. In Psalm 22, 22, he says, I will declare your name, that's God's name, I will declare God's name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Hebrews tells us that's not just David speaking, that's Jesus speaking. And Jesus says that he will declare God's name to his brethren. Jesus is not ashamed of those who believe in him, and he wants to call you his brothers. He wants to call you his sister. In this, we see the heart of Christ, a heart evident throughout the whole crucifixion story. While hanging on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The Bible tells us that though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. God's treasures are the brothers and sisters by faith in Christ. That's incredible. That's me, brother of Christ, by faith in him. Let's pray.